The scripture reading today is from the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. It is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel. And not all Abram's children are his true descendants. And it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named after you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. For this is what the promise said. About this time, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Scripture reading continues in a few brief verses from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, and then a few verses in Romans, chapter 10, the chapter that follows the one we've just heard. Matthew chapter 3. This is about John the Baptist. When John the Baptist saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abram as our ancestor. Don't lay a claim of physical birth on God. For I tell you, God is able from these very stones to raise up children to Abraham. And then Romans chapter 10 at verse 1. Brothers and sisters, says the Apostle Paul, my heart's desire and prayer to God for my own people is that they may be saved. And then at verse 6, the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven because Christ has already come down. Or who will descend into the abyss, into death, because Christ has already risen up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with a heart, and so is put right with God. And one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be 
to God. Let us bow before God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, wherever we have been, whatever we have done, whatever we have thought in this past week, pull us apart from all those things as if we were alone with you in your presence and as if you had a word for us, which you do. And equip us so that we might live not apart from this world or these thoughts, but in the world as your servants and your ambassadors, empowered by your Spirit, and guided, Lord Jesus, by your life. So speak and grant us ears to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. In the sermon series that we've been pursuing now for quite a few months, we just have one month left, just a few weeks, looking together at one of the great books in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. This is a letter which speaks about the glory of God and the sinfulness of human beings. The fact that we're all in the same boat, no matter what our religious heritage might be, we cannot save ourselves. We need help from the outside. And the good news is that God sends us this help in the person of Jesus, sends Jesus on a rescue mission to us. He lives and he dies for us. He bears our judgment in his body on the cross. And he brings us into a right relationship with God that nothing in heaven or earth can separate. He calls us to share his passion for love and for justice, for right relationships in this world by the power of his presence within our lives, by the power of the Holy Spirit whom he gives to us, not in our own strength, but in God's strength, to live in right relationships with each other in public life, in private life, and in the life of the church calls us to love in this way, and the Reverend Katie Francis last week spoke about this. But along the way in this unfolding drama, which is the letter to the Romans, a sneaky little question has arisen, which I've skipped over during the season of Easter, and I want to return to this week and next week. There's more to be said. Remember that I'm not going to cover everything this week, and probably won't cover everything next week, but there's a second part to come. But I want to return to this, this thing that we've missed, which is Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, uh, this week and next. And the question which has snuck up to Paul's readers, and perhaps has occurred to you along the way, is this. It has to do with God's faithfulness to his ancient people Israel, and with their surprising rejection as a whole, not completely, but as a whole, of Jesus, their Messiah, and with God's ongoing work in their midst. This was a pressing question in the ancient world. Even within the first 20 years or so after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it was becoming clear to the Apostle Paul and to others that Jewish people by and large were not going to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. To begin with, of course, this was not the case. The center of the early Christian church was in the city of Jerusalem. And the first followers of Jesus, including his original disciples, well, for the most part, they were all Jewish. And Paul himself, the great missionary of the early church, the writer of our letter, was himself Jewish, and he was proud. He was proud of his heritage. But as Gentiles, non-Jews, began hearing about Jesus and began believing 
in the resurrection that Jesus was alive and they began flooding into the early Christian church. And as the church moved beyond the confines of Jerusalem and Judea across the ancient Mediterranean world, the flow of Jewish converts began to slow down rapidly. So a question arose. What was God up to with his ancient people, the people of Israel, the Jewish people? And this was a pressing question in the ancient world. And it has been a pressing question for me as well. I've shared with some of you that my doctoral work, my PhD work, was not in biblical studies alone, but in the history of the ancient Jewish world in the first century before our Lord Jesus and through the first Christian century. And over a period of two or three years in the 1980s, I had the luxury of immersing myself in the writings of one of the most prolific and brilliant Jewish scholars of the late 20th century, Professor at Brown University by the name of Jacob Neusner. I look back over those years as amongst the happiest years of my life, just given this immense privilege to study to my heart's content. Of course, that was until the money began to run out and I had to have four small country churches and I had three children and then I was doing everything like some of you, balancing everything, trying to do it all together. Still wonderful years. But this Jewish scholar, Jacob Neusner, he knew not only about the roots of what we call rabbinic Judaism, back to front in the centuries surrounding our Lord Jesus, but he also knew the Christian New Testament as well. In fact, on one occasion, at least, he said quite simply and bluntly that the Apostle Paul was quite right in wanting to win Jews over to the Christian faith. And that the best way to do that, according to Romans, Romans 11, uh, 11 and then 11.14 says this explicitly, to do so by trying to make them jealous of the Christian faith and of our lives as Christians. But then he added this, that he personally had seen nothing in Christian faith over the years or in anybody's Christian life that had made him jealous. So he was quite happy to stay as he was. Quite an indictment. And if you don't remember anything else in the sermon, think about your witness, our witness to Jesus Christ in this world. But along the way, I should add, Dr. Neusner offended pretty much everyone in academia, Jew and Gentile alike. He was sharp as a tack. But I owe I owe to this man a debt that there's nothing I can do to repay. He influenced my life, his writing influenced my life, my understanding of that world and of the gospel in ways that I cannot imagine without him. So I owe him a debt. So this question, especially with regard to this one Jewish person, but of course to others, is personal to me. What is God up to with the Jewish people? But more than that, it's not just personal, it's not, not just ancient history. Of course, it's a contemporary issue as well on a broader level today because the single largest indictment against the Christian faith, along with the shameful acceptance and defense of slavery by many Christians, has been the breeding and the tolerance of anti-Semitism within Christian circles. And anti-Semitism seen clearly in the days of the Reformation and a theologian such as Martin Luther, and in many others in 16th century Europe, both Protestant and Catholic, and leading directly to the 20th century and to Auschwitz and the Holocaust and the death 
of millions of Jews. Something growing in our own nation and in Europe to this very day. And for this anti-Semitism, biblical warrant has been claimed from various passages in Scripture, in part because the question that has been asked has been not what is God up to, but who's to blame? The blame question. And to answer this question, many people have picked up on a handful of verses in Scripture, and especially one that they've singled out about blame, which comes in the 27th chapter of Matthew. The scene is this, and it comes from our Holy Week that we've just passed through. Jesus is on trial. He's being condemned to death by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And Pilate washes his hands of the whole affair, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. But the crowd, the Jewish crowd, responds differently. And they say, his blood be on us and on our children. And it's probably historically correct. Of course, Jewish people were involved. Jesus was Jewish, and this was in Jerusalem. But so too were the Romans. And there was no crucifixion ever, ever, unless the Romans were involved as well. Pilate's hands, no matter how he washed them, they were not free of the stain of blood. But even with that said, the focus on Scripture when it comes to blame has, in fact, as a whole, never been on them, those who were there locally at that time, but, in fact, on all of us because they represent us. And this is something that was clearly seen as early as the 1600s and perhaps long before that, but specifically in the 1600s by a Lutheran pastor by the name of Johann Hirmann, who wrote a hymn that we sing during Holy Week still to this very day. It speaks about Jesus' death, and he takes it out of the realm of anti-Semitism and into your life and mine. Listen as he writes, and to some of you this will be familiar. Ah, holy Jesus, how hast thou offended that we to judge thee have in hate pretended by foes derided by thine own rejected. Yes, historically, that's the case. Almost afflicted. But who was the guilty, he goes on to ask? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee. T'was I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. I am Judas. I am Simon Peter, I am Pontius Pilate, I am the crowd that was there that day, lay people and leaders. This is the overwhelming teaching of Scripture, the teaching that led to many in World War II not to join the Nazis in their anti-Semitic rage, but to hide Jewish families in their homes. And many of you are familiar with the name of Corrie Ten Boom in Amsterdam, in, in the Netherlands. And if you're not familiar with that name, look it up. Corrie ten Boom in the Hiding Place. It's a story that must be told again and again and again. But sadly for all that, in history and in our world today, there is this wickedness of anti-Semitism. And some of it, we have to acknowledge, has had a Christian tinge. But it certainly didn't come from Paul. 
certainly didn't come from Paul, who himself, as I mentioned, was profoundly Jewish and proud of his heritage, but he was immensely bothered by the fact that his own people en masse as a whole did not place their faith in Jesus. God's ancient people as a whole had rejected the one sent by God, as he believed, to be their Messiah. Didn't make him angry. Didn't fill him with blame or hate. Filled him with sorrow and pain. Listen again to our passage. Chapter 9 in Romans, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow, grief, and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Those are strong words. For the sake of my own people, my kindred, according to the flesh. And this mystery filled him with prayer as well. In chapter 10, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So sorrow, pain, Prayer and a passion to understand from the Scriptures, from God's Word, what God was up to in this moment of Jewish unbelief. You see, to Paul and to others, but to Paul in particular, God had made promises to the ancestor of the Jewish people, to Abraham, that his descendants would be embraced by God and blessed by God forever. Yet here they were rejecting the Messiah that God himself had sent to them, Jesus the Messiah, which for Paul was not only, as I've said, a question about the Jews, but it was far more a question about God and the veracity and the trustworthiness of God. Questions like these flooded his mind. Had God broken his promises to Abraham, deciding to reject the people who had rejected his only son? And more bro broadly, could you still trust in any of God's promises if God wasn't going to fulfill this quintessential promise to Abraham? And then, was God in any way still at work amongst his ancient people? Ways, perhaps, that we couldn't quite see. So it's questions like these that lie in the background of our passage, indeed of chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, of Paul's letter to the Romans. Let me read the beginning of Romans chapter 9, again, what we've already heard, and then a few more verses. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. I'd rather be out so that they could be in for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. And then he says this, they are, not were, they are Israelites. To them belonged the adoption. They had the right to call themselves children of God. The glory, God's presence, filled the tabernacle and the temple. The covenants, God's commitment to them as a people. The giving of the law, the moral and the religious path of life. The worship, the privilege of entering God's presence. And the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from them according to the flesh comes the Messiah who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Is all this over? No. In the next verse, 
he adds this. Hold on, hold on. It's as if he's saying, it is not as though the word of God had failed. And this is Paul's concern. This is his question. Not are the Jews to blame. It's just not the blame question that dominates. But has God's word failed? No. Has God reneged on his promises? No. Can God still be seen as trustworthy? Yes, says Paul. And he goes on to show this in Scripture. Now, these chapters are amongst the most complicated in all of Scripture, and my summary is going to be brief this morning, or I think brief this morning, and I hope the gist will become clear. He goes on to show this from Scripture that time and again, the God of the Bible is a God who keeps his promises while at the same time being absolutely free to do things the way God wants to do them. Paul's God is sovereign. Paul's God is not the kind of God you can put in your hip pocket and say, I know this about God, and God always acts in this way, and I sort of have God mastered. No, no, no. The God, and I would put it in modern terms, of quirks and quarks and of all those kinds of things. This is a powerful God who does things his own way. At times, he ignores his own laws, physical descent and racial purity, and even the laws of moral and spiritual obedience. And he works within his people constantly in his own way by grace. And the primary story that Paul uses to show this in our passage in Romans chapter 9 is the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And not only of Abraham, but of his son Isaac, and his grandchildren, Jacob and Esau. Let me see if I can summarize things like this. In the case of Abraham, what Paul is saying is this, his firstborn natural son, the son of Abraham's servant Hagar, by the name of Ishmael, was not the one who would carry the family name. Firstborn, but not the one that would carry the family name. God is a God of surprises. But the one who would do that would be Isaac, the son of his wife Sarah. Isaac was a miracle baby not born of flesh and blood alone, but a promise conceived because of a promise given to Abram and Sarah when they were too old to have children. Same kind of thing happened a generation later when Isaac's wife, Rebekah, she could not have children either. And God made another promise, not just that she would have children, but a specific promise that the older would serve the younger. And she had twins, and by hook and by crook, that's exactly how it turned out, despite the fact that Jacob, their younger, was a rogue and broke all of God's laws and lied blatantly and stole his older brother Esau's birthright. Yet as with Israel in the present day, from Paul's point of view, God wasn't out of the picture. God was still at work, very much at work in Jacob's life, giving him a second and a third chance by grace at work in his life. So that in God's good time, and Paul had this hope, of course, for Israel, God would bring Jacob into the center of the story, rename him Israel, and he would become the one through whom the line of God's people would flow. And these stories do not stand alone. In God's Word in Holy Scripture, stories in which God works unexpectedly and breaks the expected rules. When Israel settled in the land of promise. Uh, you might remember the biblical story of Ruth, who becomes 
uh, the ancestor, the great-grandmother of David, Israel's greatest king. She is a woman who comes from the hated tribe of Moab, from outside the family into the family. And then King David himself, immoral in his adultery with Bathsheba, yet Israel's greatest king and the youngest of eight sons, and yet the one chosen to lead. So that as Paul looks at the length and the breadth of the Hebrew Scriptures, he concludes that the mystery of the inclusion of Gentile outsiders, that's people like you and me, into the family of God as members of the family of Abraham, and the present rejection of Jesus the Messiah by the physical descendants of Abraham is nothing new and never signals that God breaks His promises and cannot be trusted, or that God has stopped working in His ancient people. In Scripture, physical descent never counts for everything. It is not unimportant, but it never counts for everything. As John the Baptist reminded the people at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, rather God's passion is always for us to know the mercy and the grace of God and to respond to that with everything in our being. This is why Paul can write as he moves on in Romans 9, in verses 6 through 8 like this, it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. But it is through Isaac, the miracle child of grace, that descendants shall be named for you. That is, as with Isaac, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who trust the promises of God, who are counted as descendants. So finally, what does it mean to be a child of the promise, a child of the God who does the unexpected? Let me suggest two things for you to chew on in the days that lie ahead. The first is perhaps a little more controversial than the second. But let me throw these out to you because I think that this is what Paul is saying through much of the rest of chapters 9, 10, and 11. Let me put it like this, the first thing to chew on. In the Old Testament, before Jesus' time and in every age since then, there have been people who have believed profoundly in the mercy and the grace of God, yet have not known Jesus explicitly. There are people who have believed profoundly in the mercy and the grace of God, and yet have not known Jesus explicitly. For example, let me ask this question. What have you found somebody who believes in the words with which I opened the service a few moments ago, in the words of the 23rd Psalm, and in the words of Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, so that they can say about God, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is the God who makes me to lie down in green pastures. This is the God who leads me beside still waters. This is the God who restores my soul. And it is on the goodness and the mercy of this God that I depend in order to live in the house of the Lord forever. What have you found somebody who does not know Jesus explicitly, who knows what the Lord requires of them to do justice, and love mercy, who knows that their life depends on that, the mercy of God, and who walks humbly before God. These are not proud people, but humble people. These are not unbelieving people, but faithful people, both Gentile and Jew alike. I believe that Paul would say something like this, that people who believe like this in the God 
of our Scripture, the God of our Old Testament Scripture, about them we have every right to expect that God has them in view. Don't know how God exactly is working in their lives, but the God who is merciful and just has them in view. The God of the Old Testament who takes and loves to take twists and turns and to follow the unexpected, but who is faithful to His Word, can be at work in their lives every bit as much as he was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Ruth and David and so many more. Ponder on that. But then, having said that, the second thing to chew on is this. What I believe Paul also believed profoundly was that this speculation or spending time, endless time, thinking about this speculation was in the end a waste of time, an endless pit of mystery that only God could ultimately resolve. And that's actually how he ends up, Romans chapter 11. How unsearchable are God's judgments, and how inscrutable God's ways. It's as if in the end he says, I've done my best to try to explain it all, but I throw my hands up in the air. So that to Paul in the end, there is actually only one person whose soul we need to be ultimately concerned about. And perhaps you know who that is. That person is you. I'm responsible for my soul, and you are responsible for yours. And Paul is explicit about that responsibility when he gets to Romans chapter 10, and when he says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Christ, he says, has already come down to earth. Let's focus on that. Who will descend into the abyss, into the place of death? Christ has already risen from the dead. Let's focus on that. But what does it say? The Word is near you, on your lips and in your heart, the Word of faith that we proclaim. In other words, don't spend your time in endless speculation about questions that ultimately only God knows the answer to, even questions about God's ancient people, whether blaming them or wondering about their eternal destiny. But think about what you and I'm speaking to all of you who are here today. What you already know. The Word of God is near you. Calling you to trust in the Messiah whom God has sent. And we are responsible for that. And we cannot escape that responsibility. And Paul says, this only requires you to do something very simple. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, your boss, that's what Lord means, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, trust that he is truly alive, I mean alive for you, and vitally interested in directing your life for good, you will be saved, he says. This is a promise you can bank on. God's word will never fail. This is to be the bedrock of our lives, to give us liberty and freedom in everything else that we do. For one believes with the heart and so is made right with God, says Paul in verse 10 of chapter 10, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. I'm so grateful for all the people that God has brought into my life over the years, many of whom do not believe as I do. And I wish that they would trust in Jesus Christ fully with their lives. But in the meantime, while I trust that my witness, think of Jacob Neusner, 
will in some sense be powerful and used by God. In the meantime, all I can do is entrust their lives into the hands of God, Paul's God, the God of Scripture who keeps His promises and loves to surprise us and is at work in more ways than we can know in the lives of others. That's Paul's God. And then I have to drop the speculation, just drop it there and turn back to myself and ask, what about me? How has God spoken to me? Do I believe the promises that God has given to me? And that in history, God sent his son, the Messiah, to me. And where is my faith? Is it slipping, sliding, or growing? Maybe it's time for me to listen again to the word of God that does not fail and to bank my life upon it. I trust that I will do that and that today you will too. Let us pray. Holy God, thank you for coming to us in our Lord Jesus Christ and for holding the universe in the palm of your hands and for, in time, unraveling all the mysteries that confuse us. Give us grace to place our lives into your loving care again this day so that we may serve you faithfully and grow in faith and grace every day. Through Christ we pray. Amen.